0: I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less-than-perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Keto, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. This week, I traveled south to Woodside, California, to talk with Roger McNamee. We spoke in Roger's office, near his home, and to say the setting was lovely is an absolute understatement. Those birds chirping in the background were really there, I promise. We did not dub them in. I've known Roger for almost 30 years, as his wife Anne is a music theorist and former professor of music at Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. While we've talked about my dad in prior episodes, we have not yet mentioned my mom. Professor Susan Weiss, a musicologist. Mom and Ann traveled in the same music circles and became fast friends. When I first met Roger, he was still living and working in Baltimore at T. Rowe Price. Since then, he has gone on to do many other things, as varied as starting a private equity fund, Elevation Partners, with Bono, yes, that Bono, to playing over 800 shows in his various rock bands, to most recently writing a New York Times best-selling book called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Elevation made only eight investments during their active investing phase, and one of them was in Facebook. Another was in Yelp. These were significant early investments, and in that capacity, Roger got to know the teams and the young companies very well. The previous two guests on our show, Eric Topol and Jessica Mega, have been very bullish on technology. And while Roger has spent a life thinking about and investing in technology companies, his journey over the past three years has taken him to a place where he sees a very different picture. I would not say he is starkly pessimistic, but he is at least extremely cautious and concerned about the role technology companies, especially big technology companies like Facebook and Google, might play in our future world. If you've not listened to the prior two episodes, I strongly suggest you go back and do so before listening to this one. I won't say more, but I promise that you'll find some of the things Roger says stimulating. Some exciting, and perhaps some more than a little frightening.
1: So I was born in 1956 in Albany, New York. I was the fifth child in a family that had six children plus three adopted. My parents adopted my uh, first cousins, my father's sister's children, three of them right before I was born. So I grew up in a huge household. I had a sister who was immediately older than I, who died at two and a half while I was in the womb. And so when I came along, the family had just had this trauma. And for whatever reason, I had a bunch of medical issues as a kid, which made my mother's life much more complicated, as you can imagine. But for me, I had almost a perfect childhood. It, You know, yeah, I... I couldn't do a lot of things that other kids did. But for whatever reason, that never seemed to be an issue. And I really give my parents a lot of credit. I also give my siblings a tremendous amount of credit. I always tell people, if you have a chance to be raised by your siblings, grab it. Because in my case, I was mostly a quiet, observing kid. Largely because, you know, I came, I was... Overwhelmed by my older siblings, somewhat overwhelmed by my younger sibling. And I had all these complications I was dealing with. But it was a great childhood. And I give that childhood credit for preparing me for adult life in really profound ways. I had a medical emergency when I was 10 uh, at summer camp where I had a fall, and a traumatic injury to my digestive tract that required life-saving surgery because they left me in the camp infirmary for three days while uh, essentially some kind of necrosis built in, and I wound up having a large piece of my intestine removed. And I went through that experience alone. My parents were still at home because they didn't tell them until they took me to the emergency room. And at that point, you know, I was, you know, when they took me to the emergency room, it was one minute later I was under, you know, because I was minutes away from being dead. And that experience of dealing with uh, a life-threatening emergency by myself was literally the greatest preparation for life I could possibly imagine. Because what I discovered, of course, is that bad things do happen, and you can survive them. And in fact, you can even survive them without any help if you're lucky. So learning the importance of luck, all those things, they really, really matter. I was one of those kids who... Because I wasn't any good at sports and I wasn't, I didn't have the world's greatest social skills. High school was brutal for me, but man, college was great. And uh, I left, followed my girlfriend out to California after a sophomore year. And my father died immediately. So I was stuck in California. And if I wanted to go back to college, I was going to have to earn the money myself to do it. And... I stayed out for two and a half years, earned enough money to go back. And in the process, once again, learned how to take care of myself in a situation where I was thrust, uh, into that need. And, uh, when I earned the money to go back to school, I developed another form of independence so that when I finished college, I was a little bit older than my classmates. I had been financially independent at that point for I guess by the time I graduated a better part of five years and I was ready for the world and I met, you know, the last year of college, I met the woman who became my wife and Anne and I have been together now for 39 years and married for 36. And one of the things that i learned in that period, it was really driven home to me. The importance of just dumb luck, you know, that, you can do all the preparation in the world. And if you have bad luck, it won't matter. Whereas you can be a person who's got health issues, uh, you know, who loses a parent at a critical moment in time, who's forced to take really crummy jobs just to survive, to live at or below the poverty line for periods of years. And with a little bit of luck, all of that becomes a positive, not a negative. And, In my case, I'm the living, breathing proof of this. So when Anne graduated with her PhD from Yale in 1980 and I graduated my BA, I already knew I wanted to marry her. The problem was I couldn't find a job anywhere near Philadelphia. And so I went to get an MBA at Dartmouth. The theory was if I went and did an MBA, I'd have a lot more geographic flexibility. You know, in those days, that was really true. An MBA in 1982, when I got out, I mean that has to be the golden era for that degree. And again, dumb luck. So it's while I'm getting the MBA that I discover, oh my God, they will pay people to do research on industries. You know, it's like an academic job, but it paid better. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's amazing, and. Again, I'm trying to find a job in Philadelphia. The problem was, it was a bear market while I was in business school. And there weren't any jobs in the investment business that were available to me in Philadelphia. So I take a job in Baltimore. And again, blind, dumb luck hits one more time. I begin my career at T. Rowe Price Associates on the first up day of the bull market of 1982. And... They let me be a technology analyst, which means for all intensive purposes, I had a gale force tailwind my entire professional career. And when people study markets, there is a truism that on average, active portfolio managers cannot outperform the market over long periods of time. The thing that the academics forget to tell you is that in a market with hundreds of millions of participants, statistically, there will be tens of thousands of people who are two standard deviations better than the mean because of pure dumb luck. Now, if your starting condition is that your first day of your career is the beginning of the longest bull market in history, and they put you in the single greatest sector, that is the definition of blind luck. And so I think it's entirely possible that everything that happened in my career Beginning in August of 1982 to the present day can be explained by, by the starting condition. So that was pretty profound because the tech thing worked not because I was ever destined to be a great investor. Cause I'm not sure that if I'd covered any other sector that I would have even been successful. It's just that I was the same age as you're Bill being, Gates. And you're Steve being too Jobs. humble.
0: You're being far too humble. I, I, no, it, no, no, hang on. This, all right. this part's real.
1: I mean, again, dumb luck. Beginning of 1987, I'm at a computer industry conference. And because my wife is in Philadelphia and I'm in Baltimore, I wind up having an insight about how to be a research analyst that was at that time novel, which is that with personal computer companies, you could sit in here doing spreadsheets of earnings models 24 hours a day. And they would do you no good at all. Because if the product was successful, the earnings estimate was always too low. And if the product wasn't successful, it was always too high. So the key thing was, what I realized was, wow, why don't I just try to figure out if a product is going to be successful or not? And that strategy led me to follow the computer industry around, which at that time was really unusual. Travel budgets for research analysts at firms like T. Price were Comparatively modest. Maybe they spend twenty days a year on the road, and my strategy was spend one hundred and fifty. And so, talking to customers and trying to figure. Well, well, actually, just going around in those days, just going around to trade shows and industry conferences, and just trying to get. Essentially, nobody knew what was going on. I mean, the industry—it was just as the people running it had no more idea than we did what was going on, and so they would get together once or twice a month at a conference or trade show and trade insights. With other people. So it was a barter system. So my strategy was to try to infiltrate the barter system. And the way it happened was so, again, lucky. I'm at a conference in 1987 in Florida. And I've just gone for a walk. And the walk is, you know, I'm just literally getting exercise. I'm coming back in. And there's two guys unloading amplifiers and guitars from a Ford Taurus rental car. The conference hotel. Everybody there is at the conference. So I say, hey, you guys having a jam session? I said, yeah, you want to come? I go, sure. So I go to this jam session. And I'm looking around, and it's like, you know, Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, and Philippe Kahn, the founder of Borland, and the chief technology officer of Apple, and all these other big... Well, it turned out, the PC industry, everybody played music. And so what they did to kill time in the evenings instead of going out to bars was that they would use a conference room and have a jam session. But they had a problem. Nobody was playing music regularly anymore. And so nobody had, nobody knew more than like a verse and a chorus. I'd been playing happy hours in bars and ski areas. So I knew hundreds of songs, which meant I was welcomed into this thing and found myself integrated in the sociology of the personal computer industry very early on. And that wound up paying dividends for the, literally the rest of my career.
0: Right. So I think you, you, just illustrated to me one of the reasons why you can't give it all to luck. First of all, it's, I mean, it's interesting to think about what you were doing or what was in your head when you decided to go on the road and try and learn about these companies. What You were obviously well, giving yourself some I was some struggling with the conventional model, right? So when
1: I first get to Turo Price, it's before PCs. I mean, PCs were in the market, but there wasn't an industry. There was Apple. I guess you could say there was Atari. And then there was IBM. And, you know, everybody else gets started right about the time that I'm beginning my career. So what's the big thing for a tech analyst? It's aerospace and defense. The big deal for me was the space shuttle. I had both defense electronics and software as my coverage groups. And there were two publicly traded software companies in 1982, maybe three. And trying to cover two things at the same time at the very beginning of my career did not work. And I was flailing. And my boss took me aside for lunch like six months in and goes, Roger, you know, there are a lot of things you could be good at in life. And if you don't figure this out really quickly, you're going to have to go and find one of them. And that wake-up call caused me to drop one of my two coverage areas and really try to focus. And it was in that context that I realized I was not naturally skilled at this. And I was going to have to find a way to take my strengths and find a way to To make the job reflect my strengths rather than me trying to bend myself to leverage the traditional strengths.
0: So, what were those strengths? Well, were you aware of them? I mean, were you? Did you? Was it a conscious decision that you thought I got? Oh, for sure, for sure. And and one of my great
1: strengths was that my wife and I lived in two separate places, so that Monday through Friday didn't matter where I was, and so that was an obvious strength. And the other thing was that because I was commuting. By the late 80s, I was using mobile technology products, right? You know, cell phones and things like that, because I had a compelling personal need for pagers and telephones. And that, you know, and, and mobile computers. And it you know, so that kind of stuff was there. I liked playing games, so I really focused on that. And it's impossible to overstate how profound my interest in games was to my success because In those days, we were just making the conversion from the government being the most important customer to corporations, the notion of consumers, that was still in the distant future. And, you know, getting a running start on that really mattered. One of my gifts, one of the things that I learned from the medical issues that I had early on was, you know, a certain amount of self-awareness and self-control. And applying those to this job meant that, you know, I had to find things that worked for me. And let's face it, T. Rowe Price was the perfect place for me. I mean, oh my God, I love those people. I mean, it's a mutual fund company. They have the highest ethical standards possible in the investment business. So in that sense, they were literally a perfect match for me. I mean, I just, and, but it wasn't just that. Their openness to trying stuff, their willingness to let people bend the job to their strengths. It was literally perfect for me. It's I can't imagine that I would have been nearly as successful had I been at some other firm. And the way I got the job was so weird. I mean, they didn't recruit at the business school at Dartmouth. I sent them a cold call letter, which had gone into a a file folder and nobody even looked at it. But then in, I think it was February of 1983, maybe in January, their three top tech analysts left the firm to start their own investment management firm. So suddenly the firm needed tech analysts. And they went into that folder where I don't think they'd looked at. And there were like three resumes in there. Mm. And they called us all up. And when he called, the director of research called me up, I was in the mm. shower. And you can't remember, this is the days of wired phones. So there's this wall phone. I get out of the shower. I'm dripping wet mm. on this stone floor. And I say to the guy, I'm in the shower. Do you mind if I call you back? He goes, you know, nah, let's just do the interview right now. Let me see how you do. And somehow I did well enough in that circumstance to invite me down to Baltimore. And they were deeply concerned that, you know, I had no association with Baltimore. It wasn't obvious that I wanted to be a research analyst from looking at my resume. And so I, my job at the beginning was to persuade them to hire me in spite of all that. And the thing that got it done was my first day of interview there, the first woman I met was a woman who was the, I think the number two economist at T. Rowe Price, who would later go on to be the leading economist at Goldman Sachs and one of Abby Joseph Cohen was her name. She became incredibly famous in the 80s. And I thought Abby Cohen was unbelievable. And the second person I met was Deborah Diamond, who was a, uh, uh, at that time, a healthcare analyst. And I'm sitting here, and it's literally the first two people I meet are women. So I'm going, this really works for me. I like working with women. And I thought they were amazing. I liked every single person I met. And they were all different. And I go in to meet the next day. I go in to meet the head of the investment business. Who? So he's the guy who's the final call. And I'd asked Ann's permission to take a risk. I go, there's no way these guys are going to hire me. Like, no way. I mean, they're going to look at me. They're going to go, no attachment to Baltimore. No obvious driver for why he wants to be a research analyst. And his brother's got a brokerage firm. They're going to take those issues and they're just going to blow me off. I want your permission to just throw caution to the window and kind of try to turn those into an asset. And she goes, go for it. So I go into this meeting and go, look, Ed, I want you to know I had the best day of my entire life yesterday. I want to work at T. Rowe, but I'm convinced you're not going to hire me for three reasons. And I give him the three reasons. The look on his face was astonishing. He like pauses and he looks out the window for a minute. He scratches his chin and he looks at me and he goes, I've been doing this a long time. No one has ever done that in an interview before. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you're correct. I was not going to hire you. And I was not going to hire you for precisely those three reasons, in precisely that order. Yet I'm in the business of hiring people who are really perceptive and, you know, who are, you know, self-aware and understand how the impact they have on people. He goes, there is no way I cannot hire you. You got a job. And, as you say, there are things about my personality that were a perfect match to that group of people. But at a different time, in a different circumstance, in a different sector, eh, not so obvious, okay? And I'm a real believer that when given an opportunity, you have to make something of it. And clearly
0: I did. But the opportunities themselves were often just random. Sure, but you put yourself in a position where you could Benefit from the opportunity. I think that's sort of the way I look at it.
1: You, you, yeah, but it didn't, it took a lot longer than you'd think. The other guys who got hired with me, they hit the ground much, as you say,
0: shouldn't have gotten even hired. You shouldn't even have have gotten hired. I mean, that's right. No, no, that's right. And, and the thing is, it's that
1: combination of things. And what I always try to explain to people, and the reason why this conversation is helpful is that people get discouraged too easily. And what you want to do, I think, is always understand reality. And then find the path from reality to where you want to go. Reverse engineer it and then do that. Right. I mean, I spent all this time that evening before that interview at Taylor Press with the head guy trying to think about how it must look to him. Now, not everybody does that. And my point is, you should
0: try it. Roger tried a bold strategy, putting himself in the interviewer's shoes, and he got the job. While Roger ascribed much of his success to blind luck, I see it a different way. I see it that Roger had advantages. And yes, he had luck. But he also put himself in a position to be able to benefit from the luck. He executed when given the opportunities. And he did all of this while staying humble about how fortunate he was. This constant loop of self-awareness is something we have seen in many of our guests. And it continues to serve Roger well.
1: There was a guy named Frank Quetron, who was the head investment banker for technology at Morgan Stanley. And my first encounter with Frank was horrible. I did something stupid. I was running the fund, uh, the science technology fund. I was doing really well. I was getting a lot of attention. And my ego got in the way. And I did something dumb to one of his analysts. Said something dumb. And I went to Morgan Stanley's in inaugural tech conference. And on my way there, a Morris Stanley person I know told me that Frank was really, really mad at me. And I should just beware. And I'd never met him. So I went up to him as I arrived. And he was getting into a car to go somewhere. And I said, Frank, I understand you're really pissed at me. And he looks at me and he goes, that ain't the half of it. He said, I'm too busy to talk to you right now. Right, and really dismiss. Because there's an event later tonight I'll look for you there, and we'll talk. They had this, like, it was in Arizona, so it was a cowboy-themed thing on a, like, little ranch set kind of thing that was from the movies. And I find Frank probably halfway through, and we sit over in the corner, and the first words he said to me is, Roger, you are way too smart to be such an asshole. That was the best single piece of advice anyone has ever given me in my life. And Frank and I wound up talking for almost four hours. By the time we realized what, well, by the time we finished the place had been empty for an hour and we were stuck 20 miles outside of Phoenix, the temperature had dropped. We were both shivering like crazy and we had no way to get back. <laughs> it's way before no, no Uber. Uber. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, it's, yeah. There, I mean, it's Arizona. So there's no taxis. Like we had to literally get somebody to drive out and pick us up. And, Frank became my business partner, well, you know, almost immediately thereafter. And it's like one of those things where when you make a mistake, when you do something really dumb, don't run from it. Confront it head on. And I have made a lot of mistakes with people who wound up becoming very important to me. And the most important thing that I've done is to recognize that I've made a mistake and go to that person and not only apologize, but do everything possible to make it right. And sometimes my best relationships my whole life have been built that way.
0: It's interesting because I wrote down a line from your book that I I really liked. You said, and this was in reference to becoming an analyst, and you said, everyone makes mistakes. What differentiates great portfolio managers is the ability to recognize those mistakes early and correct them. And I think, you know, that's something that I saw in my medical training. Actually, I think during surgery, uh, the chairman of surgery told me almost the exact same thing, that all surgeons make mistakes, but the the great surgeons recognize them and recognize them quickly and fix them.
1: Well, and that's just as true in interpersonal things as it is in surgery or research or or portfolio management. Mm -hmm. And the trick here is to recognize that it's true and to look for ways to convert your mistakes into great outcomes for
0: everyone involved—that's the key, though I think that is important to emphasize, and it, I think it ties in with your childhood illnesses. You basically took negatives and turned them into positives whenever totally. you had them. You found the you found that well, there was,
1: and I had so many negatives as a child. You know, so many of the people that I went to school with in high school and in college had literally lived perfect lives, had been protected from any kind of negative thing. And the schools that I went to generally selected for success. And I would always look around and go, what in God's name am I doing here? Because I was the opposite of that. I spent most of my life recovering from something, right? Either a medical thing or a self-inflicted wound. And what I was really fortunate was to wind up in a field that rewarded those exact capabilities in fact when I interviewed people at T. Price if I only got to ask them one question I'd ask them to tell me about the event in their lives that had had the greatest impact on determining who they were and people fell into two clusters one group of people which was the vast majority would tell me about scoring the touchdown in the football game or you know being the class valedictorian or whatever and then one person in 10 would sit there and say, well, and this is a true story. Well, when I was 12 years old, our family home caught fire. And I was in my bedroom on the second floor and I grabbed my sister and went out the window and into the tree we used to climb into. And, and the house burned down and my parents died. <laughs> I mean, I heard that guy in 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that is your life experience... right you're never going to be fazed by anything that
0: happens on wall street right but there's the other part of this which is that you have the sort of two roads you can take and you've taken you've had this sort of bifurcation several times in your life where you can go down the path of self-pity and feeling sorry for yourself or you can say look this is an opportunity for me to learn and make something out of it
1: yeah i give my parents enormous amount of credit for that right because in my childhood i don't know what it was about me but I was aware of the volatility of my father's business in a way that my siblings did not seem to pick up on. And I don't quite understand what it was that caused me to see it and them not to. But there were some years where the business was so precarious that it might easily have gone away. And my little brother and I would go in with my father to work to his office on Saturdays. And again, He'd be the only one there because it was a brokerage business. And so, you know, there were no market hours on weekends, but, you know, during the rough times, he would be there six to seven days a week, you know, doing whatever it was he had to do. And we'd have to sit there. And my little brother, I don't think he was aware of the issues, but like sometimes with family would go on vacation and he wouldn't be able to come. Right. And and it wasn't because he didn't want to come. It was because he couldn't come. Right. and, that happened more than once, and we didn't take very many family vacations, and he kind of missed some of them, right? And so, as, as a little kid, I'm looking at all this and thinking to myself, hmm, you know, what does that mean? And so, in that context of my own life experience of recovering from stuff, my father always remained incredibly optimistic, and I just picked that up. And my mother, who had lost a child at two and a half to a, a cancer that literally had a symptom and then killed her daughter within two days. And she's pregnant when this happens, right? So, you know, that has a profound impact. And, you know, her parents had not given her a wedding because she married a Catholic. And, you know, my parents, had they'd gone through the Second World War. They'd gone through the Depression. They had seen the ups and downs of life. And they passed that optimism to me. And it is interesting. They passed it to all of my siblings, too. Um, but in my particular case, it, it, in combination with my life experience, it really it made a huge difference.
0: You had a great line here that I think is applicable not just to being a parent, but to being any leader in any field. You said, my parents encouraged me, but never pushed. They were role, mo- role models who uh, i can't read my own handwriting who prioritized education uh, and good citizenship but they did not interfere no they they
1: very much took the position of look deal with it right it's like they did not tell me even in elementary school like don't forget to bring something to class right i constantly forgot to bring things and you know there's one story that that really stuck with me. We went to this like petting zoo place in probably second grade. Well, second grade was really formative for me for two reasons. This is one. So it's either second or third grade. And I forgot that we we're supposed to go. So I didn't bring any money. And of course, in our family, money was, was tight a lot of the time. And so I just literally, I didn't go in. I sat outside and I wouldn't let the teacher buy me in ticket to to go in because i'd forgotten i had to take responsibility i was i had i mean i had read two books that i decided were me one was uh horton hatches the egg which is the dr seuss book about the elephant that sits on the egg for the bird that goes to florida and the elephant never forgets and it never leaves its post and that was me and but the other part of me was was harold and the purple crayon Harold, who draws his dreams, gets himself in trouble and then has to draw his way out of it. I mean, the intersection of both and And I knew that as a little kid, that that was me, right? And the the second thing that happened, also in second grade, was my older sister, eight years older than I was, had gone away to school that year. So I'm home alone with my younger brother. And the Beatles are on the hit song. And my parents are like, they don't care. So they're not paying any attention. So I miss the Beatles on itself at the first time. And I am the only person in my second grade class who has missed it. And it was mortifying, <laughs> particularly given that I've become a musician, right? And, you know, I've seen Paul McCartney play dozens of times. And, I, you know, it's like, uh, but, you know, my parents were great that way because the lessons I took out of that were pay attention right i am you know i'm not perfectly organized now but i'm real well organized and i've spent most of my life making sure i don't miss the beatles on ed sullivan ever again you know what i mean that 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 thing just sat with me we're forgetting that we're going to the game farm right because the consequences of those sorts of things you can't recover from some of them Or if you do, you become somebody other than who you are, right? And at least i that would have been what I would have done. And uh, those things tell you a lot about me. And it's weird. And the point here is I'm comfortable with that. I mean, you know, I'm not like a member of any clubs, right? Because what club would want to have somebody like me? And, you know, you just got to be comfortable with who you are. And recognizing who you are and what situations you're comfortable in or not comfortable in super, super important. because. All this allowed me to get through high school with way less peer pressure impact than you often see. I mean, I w- was dragged by a friend to my 45th high school reading. And it's a weird situation because I didn't actually graduate from that school. So I went to do a thing on the book. And a guy from my dorm from 10th grade came up to me and said, I want to apologize to you. And I go, really? For what? He goes, well, we were in the same dorm in 10th grade, and I hazed you constantly in 10th grade. I'm going, really? Like, I didn't remember this at all. And it had been bothering him for 45 years. And I felt terrible. And I go, dude, seriously, do not worry about this. I'm not even sure. I mean, I knew that they teased me, but I was from a family of a lot older siblings. I've been teased my whole life. That, in some senses, was just normal, right? And some of it was mean-spirited, but it didn't hurt. I mean, no, you you didn't care. Yeah. Well, it's not that you don't care. It's that you know that it's not the end of the world, right? And to be able to be comfortable being different from other people is such an advantage in the investment business, right? Where, realistically, you can never outperform if you're with the crowd the whole time. And... My willingness to take responsibility for my own choices, my willingness to be different from other people, when it came to the investment business, those things were, they went from being a massive liability in high school and college to being gigantic advantages in real life.
0: So, you turned all that into a amazing start at T-Row and ultimately decided that you were going to leave. Was that something you knew? I mean, because this comes no. back to the conversation about them hiring you in the first no, place. I didn't.
1: In no. fact, I didn't want to go. And I spent... While so, what happened was this: T Rowe started a venture fund, in probably like 1985 or so. And they were so good; they made early investments in Starbucks and all of these great retail things. So this was the beginning of big box retail. So they did, you know, Starbucks and and the category killers in, you know, like CompUSA and in computers and all these fashion retailers. I mean, things that are still around that you go to a mall, they're all over the place. And they gave me a chance to do tech things. So I did a very early investment in electronic arts, the video game company, and uh, Sybase, the software company, and Radius, which made uh, graphics cards in the early days of that. And what I realized was that venture was more relevant to my public market investing than the broad market was because the threat to any existing tech company didn't come from a big guy. It came from a little guy.
0: So you were doing both. I
1: was doing both. And so I realized, wow, we should have a fund that combines the two and sell it as a product. And the venture things I was doing, I was doing with this young guy at a California venture firm called Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers. And the guy was John Doerr. And of course, John goes on to become God in the venture capital industry but at that point he was just the young guy who happened to do sun microsystems and do kleiner's part of Compaq and lotus development which when you know that would be a career all by itself right so i have this dream that i'm going to do a business with john and we're going to have t-row market it and it's going to be this really great idea and i'm at a at the comdex trade show in the fall of 1990 and john comes up to me and goes one of our investors thinks we ought to start a fund that combines late-stage venture with public market investing and they think you ought to run it what do you think Mm -hmm. and i literally uh, batting an eyelash go john when do we start because i i I was already writing up a business plan for this idea of course john had literally not thought about that moment before and stopped thinking about it a moment later and to get him back on topic took some effort but a few dumb luck breaks happened and uh and I was able to get him back on the idea. And we were all set to do it. And then John and his wife adopted a baby, and he literally disappeared. And the thing was going to end. And Frank Caulfield, one of the named partners at Klein Perkins, Caulfield & Byers, said, this is the stupidest non-decision we're ever going to make. You guys need to take this idea to another venture firm because this is a really great idea, and it's going to be huge. So we go to two other firms that week, both of whom say yes at the time. Kleiner hears about this. They come back going, wait, 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 this is our idea. And so we go into business with those guys. And the idea from the beginning is to have T. Rowe Price be our partner and have them do the marketing. Because Kleiner, their business was like, they had 10 investors or something. I mean, they didn't know how to market broadly and God knows I didn't. And T. Rowe spent months trying to make it happen, but their lawyers just freaked out. And in the end they didn't, but I parted on the best of terms. And in fact, they let me use an office there. If that fact, if I went back now, I'd be able to use an office. I mean, I just, I have so much respect for them and I've never had an unkind word for them because I, I don't know any unkind words. I mean, they literally were the greatest employer possible. You know, all I can say to you is, if you at one point in your life can work with people as great as the people at Tierra Price, you are the luckiest person on earth. And I mean, I loved living in Baltimore, and everything about it was great. And so I've stayed close to him ever since. But when I become an entrepreneur, I it literally I never thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. Just I didn't think of myself that way. And I don't know how good I was. I think I had a really great idea. And with Integral, I had the perfect partner, John Powell, who'd worked with me at T. Rowe, came as my partner, and we were perfectly suited. But when I did Silver Lake and Elevation, I was going into spaces that were less familiar, or let's put it this way, my strengths were less dominant in what those businesses needed. And so, in some ways, they were less successful entrepreneurial efforts for me then then integral was and integral was the one with kleiner perkins and morgan stanley frank quatron the guy who said that you know you're too smart to be such an asshole they wind up replacing t rowe as the marketing partner and that turned out to be profoundly valuable and it was really valuable to them it was valuable to us and you know it was unbelievable to kleiner perkins and of course john door goes on to become god in his own religion because he, he you know He does first Netscape and then Amazon and then Google. And it's like, you know, just imagine, you know, you're running a fund and your business partners are doing all that.
0: This part of Roger's life reminds me of the old adage, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Roger values making mistakes and learning from mistakes. And he turned that into a phenomenally successful investing career. He then took a chance to leave at the top of his game. Yes, this is a best-known method theme we've seen quite frequently. And he decided to move across the country to start a new venture, a hybrid venture of sorts. I was struck by Roger's observation that he learned the most about competition from younger companies, the startups, that they were the most useful source of information for the investments he made in more mature public companies. So he married the two and founded Integral Capital, which was a wild success, And while Roger was humble about the next chapters of his life, it was hard to argue with the results as Roger went on to co-found Silver Lake Capital, which went well. Well, except for the fact that Roger was traveling so much trying to keep up with his wife that he wore down and eventually had a stroke, possibly due to the enormous amount of time he was spending on airplanes. And then he got a call from Steve Jobs.
1: I wound up having, you know, coming back to this really weird situation of Having an opportunity to work with a guy I knew pretty well, Steve Jobs, to buy up to 18% of Apple at what was then cash value because nobody thought the company would ever amount to anything again. Right after the iPod, the original iPod is just shipped. and I'm looking at the iPod and going, wow, that's a really clever idea. I don't know how big that's going to be. But any kind of thing that comes up with that is worth more than the cash on the balance sheet. So I do this deal with Steve and my partner shoot it down, which is like, oh, my God. Why would they do that? I didn't understand. And then Bono comes in. We have a chance to buy Universal Music Group, his record label. And my partners say, "We'll do that deal with Bono, but you can't be part of it." I'm going, "What are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. They go, "We don't want you anymore." And I go, "Oh, that's cold." And it's like I'm, you know, still recovering from open heart surgery. And it's like, "You're kidding me?" And they go, "No, we realized, you know, we don't need you anymore." So I told that to Bono and Bono goes, screw them, we'll start our own firm.
0: And that's how elevation's that's wild. But and but the other part of the story that's pretty cool is that I guess the way you met him was through a relationship you had with Cheryl, is that right?
1: Yeah. So yeah. so in nineteen ninety-eight, the very end of nineteen ninety-eight, a guy sends me a business plan that he's proposing to the grateful Dead that is going to take a square block of the city of San Francisco and turn it into a mixed use real estate project themed around the grateful Dead. it was going to be called Terrapin station. And it was going to have an office building and an apartment complex and a shopping mall. And they were going to somehow mix into it a performance venue, uh, a museum of grateful dead stuff. The grateful dead vault would go there and to get Bob, we were on board. They were going to have a roller coaster that went through the mall and I said to the guy, dude, one, I don't know anything about real estate, and two, I don't know anybody at the Grateful Dead. Yes, I'm a deadhead. They've been my favorite band for my whole adult life, but I don't know anybody there. If you can get the head of Grateful Dead Productions to call me, I will talk to you. Literally, an hour later, two hours later, the head of Grateful Dead Productions calls me and says, hey, we'd like your help. And I'm going, I don't know anything about real estate. Nothing. I'm a tech guy. So, well, humorous. So, I go into this thing, and- I meet up with the members of the band and they've got this idea and they're really into it. I'm going, look, I don't know anything about real estate, but I know the following, which is the best deal is the one they show you before they've done anything. And then as soon as they start spending money, they start throwing ideas over the side. There is no way this thing is going to have a roller coaster, like no way in earth. It probably won't have a performance venue. If you do this, you're going to have to be satisfied with doing this as a real estate thing, this mixed use of an office complex, a uh, uh apartment, and, and a shopping mall. And so they're thinking about this. And I said, but you know, what I do know is I know a lot about tech. And you've got this business selling to your fans online. And it was created by one of your roadies. And it's like really primitive, but your fans don't care. How about if we redo the tech and make it something we can federate to other bands so that all bands can sell direct to their fans the way The Grateful Dead does. Because everybody's really envious of the way that you guys deal directly with your fans. Most of them really like that idea. And so that's the one I went to work on. And so we go to the Dave Matthews band and Fish and Pearl Jam and Bob Dylan and all these other people. Bono hears about it. And at the time, and this is 1999, he's got a philanthropic project that he's working on with the governments of the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, France, and maybe Italy, where these giant economies are going to forgive tens of billions of dollars of debt from emerging countries that cannot possibly repay it, whose economies are hamstrung by the overhead of this debt, and they're going to forgive the debt, and they're going to use the Millennium excuse, Millennium Debt Forgiveness Project. His contact in the Treasury Department of the United States of America was the chief of staff to the Secretary of the Treasury, Cheryl Samper, And I don't know Cheryl, but this is where, again, dumb luck and coincidence kicks in. So Bono says, do I got to find this guy? Cheryl goes, I don't know, him, but I know exactly who he is because my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, works for him, and he's working on the Grateful Dead project. I can get you to him. In one phone call. And so she did. And so we add you two to this conversation. And the thing that was difficult about it was that when I had my strokes, the project was not yet up and running. And I was coming back from visiting Ireland, from visiting with the management of u two. I mean, the way I met Bono was amazing. So he wants to meet me. He says, look, I'm going to be in Los Angeles for the Grammys. And this is the very beginning of 2001.
0: And you barely even knew who they were? No, it was worse than that. I mean,
1: I literally could not have named a U2 song. I mean, they came along. I was a deadhead. I mean, my musical tastes were fixed. I just wasn't, you know, I was really busy in, in grad school and beginning of my career. And so there were all these bands and, you know, U2, Pearl Jam, Dave Matthews were all bands that fish that got started when I was doing other things. So I never really focused on them and I couldn't have named a song. So, we meet in the offices of Morgan Stanley in Los Angeles at 10 o'clock in the morning after they've won a Grammy for the song Beautiful Day. Now, they had come through a rough patch. So this was like the rebirth of you 2 I can imagine they were up all night long. So they come to the office of Morgan Stanley saying, Bono and Edge, 10 o'clock in the morning. And as we're sort of meeting and greeting, Bono says to me, you know, people in my business are stupid going, really? He goes, yeah. He says, we think that people really love our music. What we don't understand is that in reality, the success the most successful bands in the music business find a new piece of hardware that teenage boys are buying, and they create software that shows off that hardware. It starts with the Beatles with hi-fi. It goes on to Pink Floyd with stereo. And then you got car radio. And that's the Almond Brothers and the Eagles and people like that. And he goes, we are so stupid. We missed what he called the subwoofer. He said, the hip-hop guys nailed the subwoofer in cars. And we just totally whiffed. And I feel so stupid. The whole business is, you know, the software is there to promote the hardware. And that's what we got to get right. I'm... I'm, (laughs) I was like, Oh my God, I don't know if that's true or not true, but it sounds true. And what an astonishing thing for anybody to see. What an incredible insight. And the notion that this is 10 o'clock in the morning after they've been up all night, I'm going, this guy's amazing. And thank God he didn't ask me my favorite U2 song. Cause I would have had to say, I can't name one. And now I've since been to, I don't know, 50 shows. And I mean, I really love U2 now, but you know, I had a whole rebirth there, but I thought Bono and Edge were just captivating, wonderful people. And they're not just great musicians. They're really great human beings. And I mean, Bono's an incredible philanthropist and Edge is just such a beautiful human being. And I mean, the other guys are too, um, but they those were the two I got to know best. And, you know, they, they would have been successful in anything they chose. And in the end, people say to me, well, you were partners with Bono. What was that like? And I go, well, the thing people forget is that you two's a partnership. And it had been. And not every day was a good day in that partnership. They had to work their way through some difficult moments. So if we were forming an investment partnership, Bono's experience in that was actually much greater than almost everybody in Elevation except for me. And He embraced the thing, so he insisted on meeting every investor before closing, which means he met over a hundred different firms. He was amazing at handling the internal dynamics of keeping everybody in line. Now, he only had one day a week available to
0: us. No one's going to say no to that meeting, right? When you call him and you say and Bono wants to meet with you, no one's going to say no, right? Well, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah. No, but but, but
1: well, the way it worked was that somebody had to say we were interested in the meeting. and we Then we would go, okay, that's fine, but you have to meet Bono first and he has to approve you. But the same thing would be true of companies, right? Because if you're at the intersection of tech and media, I mean, who doesn't want to be the next YouTube? 2 Who doesn't want to be the next Bono? And he was amazing at marketing things for these companies. And so in his one day a week, he could add so much value. And it was value no one else could do. I mean, Frank Caulfield, the same guy from Client and who'd mm-hmm. been my mentor years earlier, says, I tell him what we're doing. He goes, Roger. What's the big deal about Bono? He says, there's at least 10 guys in rock and roll who could do this. He goes, you know, there's Mick Jagger and all those other people. And I go, well, I don't know those guys. And he goes, "Yeah, well, other people do. Like, Frank, who in that scenario is going to play me? Right. Who's going to be the guy that the musician trusts, right? Who's going to be the person who's done, you know, at that point of mutual front from nothing and two startups from zero. And, You know, in the end, it worked great. And not every day was a great day, but the fund worked out really, really well. And in the end, of course, any fund where you you only make eight investments and two of them are Facebook uh, and Yelp, (laughs) you know, know, everything's going to turn out just fine.
0: This theme of making lemonade out of lemons continued showing up in Roger's life. He had a major stroke, open heart surgery and then was given a ridiculous opportunity to invest in Apple by Steve Jobs. But his partners balked and basically made it clear that they did not really want him around. That deal falling through ultimately led to a new partnership with Bono. Yeah, that same Bono from U2. Music has been important in Roger's life in so many ways. It's how he met his wife Anne, a music theorist. It played a fundamental role in his young career, when he jammed with the leaders of the early technology revolution, where Roger's experience playing in bars and clubs paid dividends in that he had a vast wealth of knowledge of songs. Then Roger was approached by the Grateful Dead, his musical heroes, to do a development, a real estate development. Of course, Roger had no business doing a real estate deal, and he told them so, but they persisted. Ultimately, Roger convinced them that his strengths, their strengths, lent themselves better to doing what Roger did best, which was to use technology to enhance what the dead were already doing extremely well, using cranky old technology in selling merchandise directly to their fans. That experiment proved wildly successful, and other bands noticed, including some of the biggest acts of the time. The Dave Matthews Band, Fish, Pearl Jam, Bob Dylan, then Bono heard about what they were doing. Roger had barely heard of U2 or Bono and could not name a single U2 song. But they wanted Roger's help. So a young chief of staff to the U.S. Treasury Secretary named Cheryl Sandberg made the introduction. And thus was born a funky collaboration between a hippie investor and Bono, the Irish lead singer of U2. As most know, Cheryl Sandberg is now the chief operating officer of Facebook, And Roger helped introduce her to Mark Zuckerberg. While Roger's best-selling book is called Zucked, it's just as much about Cheryl as it is about Mark. But it's also about technology and social media and the many things that Roger thinks that went wrong over the past 10 to 15 years. Facebook,
1: notwithstanding what they would tell you, competes against media companies for people's attention. So they compete against Netflix and video games and television, radio, books. And the same would be true of Facebook and obviously their subsidiaries. So how do they do that? I mean, there are all these other choices. How do they get you to check it out? Well, the smartphone changes everything because it allows you to address people with a device that's on their body all the time. And the way they do it is with notifications. And so the idea of a notification is that it feels like it's really personal. Hey, 47 people have liked your post or please join my network on LinkedIn or You've been tagged in a photograph. What's going on here is that they are consciously appealing to elements of human psychology that are common to all of us and that we cannot avoid. We have a basic human need for rewards. And as the gambling industry learned with slap machines, if you vary the timing of those rewards, it's more powerful than if they're predictable. So these notifications come at seemingly random times but they're not random at all. They're based on what they know about you. And they, they in turn appeal to two other things. One is your need for social validation. We need to be loved, right? And if 47 people liked your post or somebody's asked you to join their LinkedIn network, or you've been tagged, I mean, you feel really good about yourself and that in turn triggers another thing, which is the need for social reciprocity, which is, you know, you've been tagged, well, you should tag some other people or, You know, somebody's asked you into their network on LinkedIn. Of course you have to reciprocate. So that's how they build a habit. And the problem with habits is that when a device like a smartphone is on your body all the time, habits can roll over into becoming behavioral addictions because you're, they're available every free moment and they train you to check the phone. Right, It's not okay to daydream. It's not okay to just sit there quietly or have a conversation. you got to check your phone. And people say to me, Roger, how do I know if I have a behavioral addiction? And the test is really simple. When do you check your phone first thing in the morning? Is it before you pee? Or while you're peeing? Because for most of us, that is literally the range of the first check in the morning. So most of us have to accept that we have one degree or another of a behavioral addiction. And it doesn't matter whether you use the word addiction or not. The point here is that we are checking these things incessantly, involuntarily. We know it's not good for us, and we do it anyway. That's not enough. Now they have to keep you paying attention. They need lots of time because the ads, which are how they get paid, are in a newsfeed or on the side of a search result. And you're not going to spend a lot of time with them. So they have to get you to see lots and lots and lots and lots of ads. Again, they appeal to elements of the human psyche that we cannot bypass. And you think to yourself, well, fine, so show me kittens and show me baby photos and, you know, happy things. And the problem with that is that one person's happiness is another person's jealousy or resentment, right? And if, what happens when somebody shows you their perfectly manicured vacation on Instagram, right? You get annoyed with them. What happens if they show you their meal that they enjoyed so much last night? You go, why do I care? Whereas, if they appeal to flight or fight, if they hit you with things that either make you afraid or outraged, your engagement level goes off the charts. Because we are, in many ways, herd animals, and it turns out that if you are afraid or you're outraged, you want to share that fear or outrage, because if others share that with you, you're just going to feel better. But not only that, there is a social benefit to being the one who shares. You get prestige from being the one who is the who alerts the herd that there is danger coming. And so we do that. And, of course, the algorithms of these companies are tuned to promote the content that we engage with most vigorously. And for most of us, that's going to be fear or outrage, which turns out to be hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. And they don't promote that stuff because they want to promote hate speech, disinformation, or conspiracy theories. The algorithms don't care. They don't even think about that. They just promote what we react to and we can't help. It's not that we like hate speech. It's that none of us can avoid reacting to
0: it. Well, and that's what still adds. That's what, I mean, basically, I think you said somewhere in the book about how the flaws in the business model, right? That if their, their business model is basically to to sell these ads so the algorithm is going to train to do exactly what you just described
1: and so in a in a in a context of democracy this becomes a huge problem because conspiracy theories you know whether it's flat earth or anti-vax or climate change denial these are all things that before smartphones and before internet platforms existed to one degree or another but they were relatively isolated the ability to share these things the ability to to essentially uh, immerse yourself in them, did not exist. So what happened was that by reinforcing the things people like, once somebody is anti-vax curious, you hit them again and again, and they become anti-vax committed and finally become a proselytizer. Well, if you do that to everybody, essentially what winds up happening is you have, in the case of Facebook, two and a half billion Truman shows where everybody's living in their own reality with their own set of facts. In the United States, that's been incredibly destructive of democracy because you have roughly 40% of the population that believes as a article of faith, that there is no link between human activity and climate change, that there is a link between vaccines and, and autism or the earth is flat or something else like that. And If 40% of the population is convinced of things that aren't true, it's really hard to have a democracy. Because democracy depends on having shared facts. You can disagree about what to do about climate change. You can disagree about what to do about vaccines. But if you deny the legitimacy of the other point of view, you can't have a democracy. And we see that. So these guys didn't create this problem, but boy, did they magnify it. So, those are the things that I learned, and the business model based on that obviously can be very poisonous, particularly to uh, public health. So, the week before my book came out, Shoshana Zuboff, professor at Harvard Business School, puts out a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. (laughs) That changed my life, transformed my world, and Mm -hmm. honest to God, if she doesn't get a Nobel Prize in economics, they should just shut down the Nobel Prize in economics because this book is it's ungodly important. Everyone should read or listen to the audiobook. It's big, but it's really worth it. So Shoshana has studied Google and to a lesser extent Facebook, but she studied Google for more than 10 years and Facebook for probably the last six. And then Microsoft and Amazon. And she has a basic observation that these guys have a different way of looking at the world. That from Google's perspective, the world is incredibly inefficient. And people are really unhappy because they have to make too many choices. And Google's solution to this is to take all human experience and convert it into data, then run it through machine learning and uh, AI algorithms and essentially take all the stress out of life by making decisions for you. Essentially what they want to do is to replace democracy with algorithms and you sit there and say to yourself, "Well, oh, hang on. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? And I go, well, we need to have a debate to figure out whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Because essentially, their idea is the opposite of the Enlightenment. It's the opposite of, of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which are all about free will and individual choice. And their notion is, now nah, that's really inefficient. We're going to replace that. Think about how that works. And, and Shoshana has these great examples. The case of Google Maps. A lot of people use Google Maps to commute in the morning, right? And they wake up and they look and Google says every once in a while, let's say, I don't know, one day in 10. Today, you need to take an unusual route. And people trust Google, so they don't think about what's going on. Let me tell you what's going on. Again, I get this from Shoshana. Google calls it load balancing. They need to distribute the traffic on all the available routes to keep it moving smoothly. I call it, and Shoshana would call it, plain God. And I ask the simple question of who paid Google for that, right? And you say, so, well, in, in the case of Google Maps, that doesn't bother me. And they go, well, okay, well, let's look at Ways." And with Ways, they introduce a business model based on getting paid to have traffic flow by various retail establishments. So, they, as Shoshana will say, let's say they figure out that you like ribs. So, at mealtime, your route is going to be extended to drive you past rib places. And if your goal is to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible, then that's in conflict with your goals. And maybe you say, yeah, I like ribs. I'm happy with that. I'm sitting there going, okay, now imagine they're doing this to every product they have. So I tried with Google Glass. Google Glass was the first time that they chose to convert human experience in real time. So people are wandering around with glasses on, and they think that they have a little computer in the corner and they can stay up to date or whatever. But from Google's point of view, they are actually sensors. So they're capturing facial recognition of all the people that they encounter. And facial recognition in this context is not just who you are. It's looking at the thousand muscles in your face and determining your emotional state of mind. So is this person angry, happy, sad, whatever. And on top of that, it's capturing everything that the person does. Now, that product failed. We called those people glass holes, and it didn't work. So Google goes back into the lab. And this is one of the things that Shoshana saw that I missed completely. They repackaged it as a video game. And they don't take any chances. They spin it out as a separate company called Niantic. Come on, really? And the game was called Pokemon. That was Google? And suddenly they have one billion people with a smartphone wandering around. Who They think they're playing a game. And a couple things are going on. They're doing all the facial recognition things. They're capturing all this human behavior. But then Google gets to run behavioral manipulation experiments. Right? Post 9-11. We don't interact with strangers, except in Pokemon Go. They ran the test. Hey, if we put a Pokemon in somebody's backyard, will you knock on a stranger's front door? (laughs) You bet you will. How about if we put it over a fence? Will you climb a fence? Yeah, people will climb a fence. Well, how about if we cut a deal with Starbucks? Will you go into a Starbucks if we make that part of the game? Will you buy coffee? Yes, you will. There were a billion people playing it. So the large... Behavioral manipulation experiment in China, which is called social credit, currently affects fewer than a billion people, a lot fewer than a billion people. So what we need to recognize here is that there's something going on that we're on top of. And here's how it works. We think the deal with Google, with Facebook, is that we give up a little bit of data for a service we really like. And at one time that was true. But now there's something much bigger going on. They are buying or gathering data, essentially getting 100% of the place where we interact with the digital world, they get that data. So they track us everywhere we go online. They buy data from our bank, from credit rating agencies, credit card processors, cellular companies, healthcare companies, all the affinity cards we may have, any business web or otherwise that will sell them data. In Google's case, and I think Microsoft's, they scan your emails and your documents for things that are valuable to them. And then all these new ambient surveillance products like Mm -hmm. Pokemon Go, but like Alexa, like Google Home and Google Assistant, like a Facebook portal, like Google's Sidewalk Labs Smart Cities project. When you add all that up, the data you're putting into the system is probably at most one-tenth of one percent. It's the least important one-tenth of one percent. See, what Google's been doing, and what Shoshana pointed out, is it's like the Apollo program. If you want to go to the moon, you don't just fire off a rocket and land on the moon. You do a whole set of tests first. And then Gemini first, you had to get into Earth orbit. And then you had to dock in Earth orbit. And then you had to do a spacewalk. And then you had to do all the same things in lunar orbit. And you had to go down to the moon without landing, right, all these steps. Well, Google's been building up from from, you know, Google Maps through... Uh, ways through uh, you know pokemon go to the the payoff is sidewalk labs smart cities and the first one is in toronto and in this case they are literally replacing government with algorithms and they are they are gathering data in every possible way there's they have cameras and sensors literally everywhere there is no sanctuary and they own all the data and part of the deal is the government must protect them from any kind of political pushback Now, as you can imagine, the people in Toronto are pushing back really hard because what is this? This is the matrix. And the people in Toronto figure out, wait a minute, the best time to end the matrix is not after it's in place, it's before it's in place, right? And that's sort of what's going on. People go, Roger, that's just too weird, too intense. I'm going, yeah, that doesn't mean it's not true
0: all right so i got one question last question for you this is dark we can find i mean you we- well no no but hang on right. don't be too pessimistic about it well that's what i wanted the to politics to. about this
1: are much clearer than they were when i wrote the book so the way to think about this is there are four classes of problem there's public health issue kids and adults there is the democracy issue which has two aspects of it one is the the polarization of the population the other is the actual election interference then you have uh the privacy issues which are are you ever going to have the freedom to make choices without fear? You know, are you ever going to have any sanctuary, any place you can go and just be yourself? And then lastly, competition. And these guys, the game they played is so extreme. They've made the politics really straightforward. And I've discovered this personally. It's not about right versus left. It's about right versus wrong. And this is incredibly helpful that both parties understand there's something they need to deal with and they're on top of it. And you see this with, uh, you know, the antitrust division of the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission and both parties in Congress beginning to take antitrust seriously for the first time in more than a generation. And they're doing it for the same reasons and for the right reasons. Now, antitrust has been out of fashion in the U.S. for so long, it's going to take a while. It's a very hard thing to do. And it only addresses the competition part of the problem. We have to have other ways to go after uh, the issues of public health. Democracy and privacy. Now, fortunately, Professor Zuboff has provided the path there, which is it is the business model. But the business model, as she describes it, we want to look at one stage earlier than the way I looked at it in, in my book. Uh, my book, there's nothing about the book I would change other than her notion is you have to end the practice of gathering data everywhere, and then exploiting it without the permission, support, or knowledge of people. Essentially, she uses the the, the metaphor of, or the analogy of uh, 1900 with child labor. The, the debate about data today, right? Millennials will sit there and go, eh, I'm not worried about this, right? I'm a digital native. And they go, hang on, here's what we're dealing with. In child labor in 1900, the debate was between five hours of child labor a day and eight hours until somebody came along and goes, wait a minute. The right number is zero. And the digital nails will go, Oh, I'm not worried about this. And I go, Well, hang on. It isn't actually about you because it's not your data that's causing the problem. Remember, if you are a woman, there is a higher than 90% probability that Google will know you're pregnant before you do. They have this data voodoo doll with all this data in it and they are manipulating your choices and those of everyone else. Remember, you get no benefit from the data that you're putting in, right? They've looked at everyone who's gotten pregnant, looked at the thousand steps ahead of time and discovered there are all these common things that occur, some of which occur after pregnancy, but before the person's aware. And so they're in the business, as, as Shoshana Zuboff would say, of selling behavioral predictions. They make a market in behavioral predictions and they're in the business of selling certainty. And the problem with that is that we trust them. We trust search results. We trust our news feed. We think that they're honest brokers. What we, we don't realize is that they don't need our data anymore. They need us to use the products so they can control the search results to drive us towards the certainty that they're selling. So the way it works is they go to their customers who are the marketer who want to reach us. And they're monopolists so they can provide access to everyone and perfect information through that data voodoo doll. What do we get? We get what they give us. We get what they allow us to have, which are the things, you know, they they know everything. They know how much money you earn, how where you spend it, where you live. So they tailor your search results based on what they know. And my basic point is you may not, after you know all this, want to make any changes. God bless. But right now, 99% of the population has no idea this is going on. And we ought to have a conversation about whether we want to live in the matrix before it happens. And 2020 is coming up. And the great thing is every one of us can play a role because we're going to meet all these politicians. And nobody in politics is on the wrong side of this today. Doesn't matter what party, what candidate you want to vote for. You just want to get in their grill and go, what are you doing? I mean, antitrust, you seem to be doing great. You're going to deal with the competition part. What are you going to do to keep these guys from literally collecting all this data about me and using it without my permission, without my awareness, you know, are you going to apply the same laws to people who do email and uh, texting and documents that you apply to the postal service or telephone companies, where it's a felony to read what's going on through your pipe, right? That's, I mean, that should be a no-brainer. Medical stuff, there's no way in God's green earth that people should be able to 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 do what they're doing online, right? They're not allowed to discriminate against a pre-existing condition, but if they know you have a pre-existing condition, the insurance products that you're shown will never reflect what you're entitled to. Cuz they don't have to.
0: Okay, so here's my question cuz this is like I said before it's dark. But my question, It's dark, but we have the power. What? Well, yeah, and 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 I believe you on that. But I guess my other the the side question is Assuming that we have to and will solve this problem, is there something we can learn from this experiment? In other words, is there, these guys, on the one hand, what they've done is incredibly powerful in a negative way. But on the other hand, they've learned more about human behavior in the past 10 or 15 years than we've learned in the previous history of the world. And so could we take what they've learned and apply it for good? Ask yourself
1: what they've learned about human behavior that doesn't take you back to a period before civilization. They've learned nothing. All they've done is reinforce things we, we used to know before civilization really took hold. I, here's what I will tell you, and I think this is the right way to look at this. There is nothing good that these guys do that you cannot reproduce easily or that they couldn't deliver
0: with a good business model the problem here isn't social media the problem isn't search it's not well so that's you know, where i'm going unlike, is yeah. is there something in the future if we put up the guardrails and fix the business well, it's, it's 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 better than that yeah so if, if you've ever done that that thing where they
1: ask you on google are you a robot you know and they show you the pictures of cars and and trucks and signs you you know that they don't need you to do the signs to know you're a A human, right? Right. They do that to train the artificial intelligence for Google self driving cars. They know you're a human based on mouse movement. Here's what's deeply wrong with their business model their customer is not you. If you wanted to make the first medical diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, can you imagine a better way to do it than by tracking people's mouse movement? They're doing it. Well, here's the problem though the guy with the largest collections are people like Google and Facebook, right? And remember, And and Amazon. Amazon is in the health insurance business now. Okay. Who is their customer? Their customer is not you. And so if they see the first sign of it, let's say 50% probability, 75% probability, they're going to take it to an insurance company or a drug company. The insurance company is either going to take away your insurance or raise your rates. And they're not even going to tell you because it's a pre-existing condition, right? So. What you really want to do is convert these things into insurance products where they are using what they learned for your benefit, that they are not sharing your data. You know, all these things. And you, this issue of treating data as a fuel source like like oil, it dehumanizes us because suddenly we're not the customer. We're not even the product, we're the fuel. And in that context, we're just a metric. And the same thing is true of these, like, Ancestry and, and 23andMe. You're paying them to share your data. Well, and, you know, the same thing happens in the medical field, right? Where, you know, they claim it's anonymized, but it's all nonsense. They have so much data they can de-anonymize in a heartbeat. But you're basically, you know, all these medical information systems aren't improving outcomes. They're improving the collection of payments and and they're improving the targeting of drugs except the targeting of drugs isn't against immunizing people against ebola it's against these really narrow things where they're free to price them as high as they want right and all the incentives are wrong and it's not just in tech peter drucker was the great management guru of the later part of the industrial age used to talk as as the five stakeholders shareholders employees the communities where employees lived um, customers, and suppliers. And his notion was a good manager had to balance all five. And he wouldn't balance them equally, but you balance all five. For the last almost 40 years, we have basically operated as though the only people that matter are shareholders. And over the last 20 years, led by the tech industry, we've acted as though metrics are the only thing that matter. Well, the problem with that, if all you care about is shareholders, then you're going to do a lot of harm to employees, to the communities where they live, to suppliers and customers. And if all you care about is metrics, there's no room for ethics. Because ethics, by definition, is the willing to sacrifice a metric for a higher value. So we're in a bad place, and it's everywhere in the economy. Remember, the banking industry destroyed the economy without consequence. Wells Fargo took money out of the accounts of millions of account holders, and nobody went to jail. ExxonMobil had its own foreign policy in Russia in contravention of sanctions, and the CEO was promoted to be the
0: Secretary of State. So this is way bigger than tech but do you see anything like i know you're not doing a lot of investing now probably but do you see anything now any young companies that are mission driven where you can where you can actually say well that's actually they're headed in the right direction absolutely but i see way better than that the thing i would point out 2018 was a
1: watershed year i mean if you think through the parkland kids and the impact that they've had I, the head of the National Education Association said to me that there was something like 60 successful teacher labor actions last in 2018, which I think was like more than the prior decade. Stop and shop, which was this year, was the first uh, industrial strike that I think really worked in a long time. The air traffic controllers stopped the, the government shutdown with like a two-hour sick out. You had unbelievable spikes in turnout in the 2018 midterms. Civic engagements happening And then in the product world, in tech, Apple has really stood out. Android, if you think about Android as essentially a product designed to spy on you, That is that is directly what it is, right? There's an amazing thing Oracle did an analysis of Android, and you can find it on YouTube. And it turns out you can take out the operating system, and you can take out the cellular, and the thing still tracks where you are. It knows what you're doing, and if it ever gets a network connection, it just uploads all that data. If you buy a smart TV or any smart appliance, you have to agree to Google's. Android terms of service or Amazon's terms of service, which give them the ability to spy on you. I mean, it's all nuts. And Apple's basically building a business model to protect you. The reason they do Apple Maps is so that you don't have to use Google Maps. Now there have been issues with Apple Maps, but they're trying to get rid of, uh, they have this incredible new credit card coming, the Apple card, which would be the first one designed to have no data leakage, which is a, it may be a really big deal. I mean, it's a no-brainer to get. They have this new thing called sign-on with Apple, which is when you're going around the web. Instead of using Facebook Connect or Google Connect, you use the Apple one. And what it does is it uses a random email for everything you log into so they can't track you. I mean, that stuff's really important. I mean, I use DuckDuckGo as both my browser and as my uh, search engine. They do not track you at all. I use a thing called DisconnectMe, as, uh, which is a tracking blocker. And I use uh, ghostery as a tracking blocker. And the people are really working on this stuff. Mm-hmm. The next generation is about inverting everything. It's really about going back to distributed models where you put the person, the consumer is the customer. They're the center of all this. And the goal is to protect them, not to harm them. And I think that's going to be phenomenally successful. And it's going to take, you know, antitrust, in order to create space because these guys are monopolists and block your access to consumers. But I think all that's coming. And the key thing is, this is, you know, when I lay out a dark vision, it's because people need to understand that we're not messing around here. These are the most powerful companies in the world and they're winning. I mean, Facebook just introduced a product called Libra, which is designed to replace currencies, right? Their whole goal is to replace governments in the role of, of default currencies. Google has its smart cities thing. It's replacing governments in democracy. Amazon's doing the same thing in health insurance. And they're doing all this by bypassing civilian control. And I'm going, that's nuts. There's nothing stopping these guys unless we're willing to sit there and say, you know, we're willing to take a little bit of inconvenience for a short period of time to get these guys back to where they used to be before they hurt us. I don't think that's a bar we can we should have any problem with. But, you know, it takes everybody. And the beautiful thing about this book tour I've been on and this activism I've been on is people are responding. And again, they view this as a right Versus wrong, rather than
0: right versus left. I agree. Civilian control is about to stop us, though, it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> we did. Well,
1: anyway, I really, Ethan, I've really enjoyed this, this conversation. And I just would encourage everyone to get uh, uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitals. And if you want to get my book, Sucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, I would appreciate that, too. Um, but But engage in this. It really does
0: matter. Can't thank you enough, Roger. My pleasure. Let's revisit a question that is really at the crux of many things we discuss here and matter a lot to me personally. Specifically, can we harness technology to enable positive changes, say in healthcare or medicine? Or is technology going to have a net negative impact on our health? Obviously, this is an unanswerable question for now, but I'm going to tell you what I think, and it should be obvious. Despite many of the potential pitfalls, I see the promise of using technology to be a force for good, especially in health. Over the past three episodes, we've heard from one unabashed tech optimist in Eric Topol and from Jessica Mega, who works full-time at one of the companies this week's guest, Roger McNamee, warns about the most, Google. But I see Jess as a realist and as someone who embraces the power of data and technology to improve health while recognizing its limitations. She also has a strong sense of how to generate evidence to support the utility of tech as it's applied in healthcare. Roger's a fascinating counterpoint to Eric and Jess in that he has a much longer and broader experience in technology. Perhaps he was even more of a tech evangelist than either Jess or Eric. So should we value Roger's perspective more? Does his vast experience in tech give him special insights that the rest of us can't see? Or is Roger jaded? I bet that if we all got in a room... As with many things, we would likely share more common opinions and philosophy than otherwise. Maybe that is the best-known method that I take away from this week's episode more than any other. That is, we must work actively and tirelessly to avoid retreating to our own filter bubbles, where we surround ourselves only with people who do not disrupt our cognitive dissonance. Perhaps we spend less time trying to convince others that we are right, and we spend more time trying to listen and ask why we are probably wrong. So beyond all the amazing stories of Roger's youth and his success as an investor or his foray into being an activist, my biggest takeaway from Roger was the lesson to never stop asking how we might be wrong. This is best known method